I am Seldon. Good morning, everyone. I am a member of the Clinton Al-Anon family group, and I hope a member in good standing. I want to thank the committee for your kind invitation for us to spend this delightful week with you in the sessions by the sea. It's just been great up until now. I must tell you, since this is an honest program, that I was led to believe this, is, this was going to be a small conference. And so this morning, I stand in awe of the great number of you who are out there. But I hope that I will always be in awe of Al-Anon and AA wherever you are, because I truly believe that all of us are miracles as a result of God's working through people. I'll now try to tell you what I was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I was born and brought up in Clinton, and I'm not going to tell you how many years ago, because my husband gets a lot of pleasure out of doing that. And he's going to have the rebuttal this evening, so I'm going to be just a little careful of what I have to say. But I tell you, it's a very awkward age when you get to be older than the speed limit. <laughs> and not quite old enough to met for Medicare, it's pretty awkward. I was born the only child of older parents who for many years had awaited the birth of a son. For that reason, I was named for my father. My father died in 1929, which was not a good year. My mother was and had been, all of her married life, a housewife. She was left with a small child to rear, a business that she was not trained to run, and other financial problems. And an uncle came, who was a good businessman, to help her through this trying time. And over a period of time, under his tutelage, she became a very successful businesswoman in an era when women were not in business. Through this experience, I learned two things. I learned independence and self-reliance. That if you, you first must try to do what you could for yourself before you ask for help. Now, these were two traits of character that I developed through the years, but during the drinking years, I was to not only misuse those traits of character, but I also abused them. I think it's significant also that I formed at this time an opinion of drinking, what was good drinking and what was bad drinking. This uncle, whom I came to look upon as my surrogate father, was retired. He was a very large, silver-haired, distinguished old gentleman, and he visited frequently in our home to help my mother, and we also visited him in another town, and we traveled with him. Now, this was a new experience for me. Um, up until that time, I'd never been out of Clinton. Uh, my father was a hard-working man, and he spent long hours in the store, and as a result of his hard work, he provided well for his family, not only while he was living, but after he died. And a whole new world opened up to me, and I thought it was glamorous. 
Now, this uncle had a daily pattern of living, which was almost a ritual with him. He arose very late. He ate a very hearty breakfast. He settled in the best chair in the house with a newspaper, and the um, crossword puzzle was the thing that he did most. And in this easy chair, he held in one hand a cigar and in the other a highball. Now, I never, this was not early in the morning, I hasten to add. I never knew him to vary uh, this pattern. I never saw him drunk. I never saw him with too much to drink. And because I, he became my ideal, this became my idea of what good drinking was. My father had a younger brother who was crippled from birth, and all of his adult years, he caused the family trouble, grief, and money to hit, to my grandfather, to my father, and even to my mother after my father died. I don't know that he was an alcoholic, but every time he was in trouble, he was drinking. Now, this became my idea of what bad drinking was. And much later, when drinking became a problem in our family, I made the mistake of comparing or trying to compare my husband with the only other two men whom I had personally known who drank. He didn't fit either pattern. And so our little pamphlet may have been written for me, the merry-go-round called Denial. My growing up years were happy years, and I never felt deprived of not having a father. And I credit my mother with giving me this sense of family through her teaching of love, respect, and pride. Many of these values I lost during the active alcoholism, but Al-Anon has helped me to regain them. And from Al-Anon, I have learned much, much more than I ever learned in school or college or marriage or life. I think that the saying is very true. When the pupil is ready, the teacher will appear. As long as I can remember, I've loved my husband of 46 years. Now, not continuously. but most of the time. Now, my first remembrance of him was when he came to my fifth birthday party. Now, he disclaims any knowledge of this, and in the rebuttal he may tell you so, but you can believe me. Um, now, since Clinton was such a small town, all the children came to each other's birthday parties. And this is the first time I remember him. Now, his mama had dressed him in a little Lord Fauntleroy suit with short velvet pants, an Eton jacket, and a frilly little shirt. He looked like a blue-eyed angel, except for one thing. He'd had a birthday before I had, and for his birthday, he'd gotten a BB gun. Now, everybody knows what good's a gun unless you shoot it, and he did. And he hit me. Now, lots of people say that when they met their husband-to-be, that it was love at first sight. Now, with me, it was love at first shot. We started in the first grade together. We went all through high school together. 
And I'm sure that our families decided that when it came time to go to college that we should be separated. And these were in the days when you were told where you were going, not you had no choice. So he went to a coeducational college in Upper East Tennessee where his family had gone, and I was sent to a girls' school in Middle Tennessee. It didn't work. Between our freshman and sophomore years, we married. Now, this may well be the most interesting thing I'll tell you this morning. We didn't tell it for two years. Now, the first year, we had a really good reason. I knew that I was already in big trouble and that I needed to graduate. And I, had it been known that I was married, I would not be allowed to. And so we knew on the front end that we were not going to tell this for a year. At the end of the first year, uh, after my graduation from junior college, um, I can't remember the uh, argument that I used to persuade him that I thought it would be a good idea to not tell it for another year. I think I may have said to him, well, I really want to go on to school and complete my education, and maybe my mother won't send me. I don't think that was true then, and I'm, as the years went by, I'm convinced that it wasn't. But anyway, I talked him into it, because I wanted to go to UT. And I, so I did my junior year. That's the University of Tennessee. And I participated in all the things that everybody else did who wasn't married. Uh, when he could, he came to be my escort. Uh, I didn't miss any of the dances or anything because he had an older brother who was a student at the University in Tennessee, and that brother was not presently romantically engaged, and so he became my escort. Provided that Buford furnished the car, bought the tickets, and the corsage. Now, I realize that dates me because, you know, corsages were necessarily evils in those days. Well, the junior year went by, and I thought, Lord, this is just great. It's the best of both possible worlds. I just lack one year before graduating, and I don't really see much sense in telling it now. He didn't agree. In fact, he was very adamant about it, and he said, we're going to tell your mother. And I said, well, I'm not. You may have to. And he did. And I remember how gracious she was, and I'm sure she must have been disappointed, you know, an only girl and not having a wedding and all that good stuff. But I know that she said to us, I hope you will be very happy. And I still remember to this day how how good it really made me feel, although I still felt kind of guilty from the subterfuge that we had practiced. You see, we were facing um, the big war, World War II, and um, it was becoming every day a reality. Buford had volunteered for the Air Force and was waiting to be called. And in in the meantime, we had a small apartment, which was our first home in Knoxville while I attended UT. It was absolutely beautiful. Now, it was to me. I look back and I think, oh, Lord. But I'll have to tell you what it was like. It was called a studio apartment, and that's the nicest thing about it was the name. We had a small kitchen and a bathroom and one large room with a Murphy bed in it. Now, a lot of you are young out there and don't know what a Murphy bed is. I see they're coming back in vogue, and it gives me a feeling of nostalgia. 
Now, we had one great big room, and this bed shot up into the wall. And um, it was kind of inconvenient at times. Now, these days, it was unheard of to be married and to be in school. In fact, in all of the University of Tennessee, there were only two couples who were. We lived in the same apartment house, and we somehow became unofficial hosts to all of our friends, and drinking became a very much a part of our life. But it wasn't a problem for the very simple reason that there wasn't any money. Now, um, Buford did enter the Air Force, and when he did, I moved home to Clinton to live with my mother and work in the post office, which was the best job you could get in Clinton at that time. I didn't know it at the time, but I also was going to be awaiting the birth of our first child. She was born in December, and 22 days later, Buford Christ in an airplane crash and was to spend the next two years in army hospitals. When he... You know, I can still remember how I felt. I thought that absolutely that that was the most devastating thing that would ever happen to us in our lives. But it really wasn't. When he was released from service, he entered law school, which he had always wanted to do. He was on crutches at the very beginning and later in a brace. We lived in Clinton um, for the simple reason of economics. It was cheaper to live in there. We were living on the GI Bill. The fellows were carpooling to the uh, to law school. We um, we mamas were out there rearing our children and exchanging recipes for 101 ways to fix hamburger. You know, it really, they really were good years. You know, we were also very grateful to be a family again, to be a family again, and to get on with our lives. There was drinking, but again, for economic reasons, it really wasn't a problem. After graduation, we did many things in a short period of time, and I look back on it and I think, well, you know, that's typically alcoholic activity. He started practicing law. Our child went into first grade. I began teaching school, and we bought our first home. My mother was on vacation at the time, and when she came back, she said, I think you all were drunk when you did this. <laughs> Because was, it was an expression. She really didn't mean it. Uh, Buford was very successful, not in the beginning. Now, this, these were the days when, it, you know, you allowed 10 years to establish a successful law practice. And this was the reason that I felt like it was necessary for me to teach. Because we were a family in a hurry. But, you know, I look back now, and I know that I was always an overachiever because I was measuring worth with acquiring material things. Buford had the ability to support his family. I just wanted to get what we were had lost all that time a lot quicker, and I felt like with two doing it, we would succeed. 
Now, that teaching school, I want to stop here and say that this morning in the audience, there's a young man that was in a class that I taught the first year that I taught. We He's here with his wife, Elizabeth. We call him down home Big John. We did then. We still now. He's from Manassas, Virginia. I had the pleasure this past month of attending his 35th class reunion, and I was particularly eager to be with all these young people one more time after all these years. I had often wondered how much damage I had done that first year of teaching. And I can assure you that they taught me much more than I had ever learned in books. But they were also happy, successful young adults, and it really, really made me feel good. You see, I had begun teaching for all the wrong reasons, money. But fortunately for the children and for me, I liked the association with young people. I loved to teach. I thought it was a challenge. And so I taught for 17 years, which was far longer than I should have. And I say that for two reasons. One of them was the trait of character that I had mentioned earlier, this desire to be, you know, independent of. And my teaching assured that I could be independent of. And the second thing was that I liked the things that I could do with my own money. Now, through an inventory, I learned that actually my teaching served a third purpose. It became a tool of survival during the active alcoholism. The years passed by, the ten years of probationary period when, you know, the first fee was a shotgun and a sack of potatoes, all that passed by, and as the years went by, he became successful in the practice of law, and after about ten years, was appointed to and elected for three terms as judge. And um, I have to confess that we had a lot of drinking then, and that whenever I heard the expression, sober as a judge, <laughs> and even today, sometimes it shattered my serenity. In the interim, we accumulated possessions, joined clubs, traveled, and entertained. Now, we possessed all the trappings of a successful young family. You see, material possessions, coupled with a position in the community, became my yardstick for measuring not only success, but also happiness. There was to come a time when all of these things became absolutely meaningless. The drinking progressed as it does in the disease of alcoholism. It was no longer fun, if it ever was. We began to have problems, and they became increasingly serious problems, just as the program, just as the disease of alcoholism is threefold, physical, mental, and spiritual. At this point, our daughter was away in school, and after a couple of years of college, married. We were just where we had started out, just the two of us again. Our, our home had become a house, not a home. We were not really living, we were just existing. 
together. I think I can best describe it by comparing it with a movie set where you just see the front of everything and it just looks great. But when you open the door, there's nothing there. It's all propped up inside. Now, two of those props were my false pride and my continued denial that the problems we had were not drinking problems. Now, in a, you know, I've heard a lot of AA. In fact, the first time I ever went to a meeting, it was to an AA meeting, and I've loved them ever since. And I think that was by plan, not by chance, because I think I needed to hear that side of the coin. And I know you say that it's an obsession. The alcoholism is an obsession. And, of course, it was with my alcoholic. He was obsessed with the alcohol as I was with the alcoholic. Although I continued to deny long after he said he was alcoholic. And I think his was a cry for help, which I did not recognize. You see, I was a born fixer. And I couldn't admit to myself that I couldn't fix anything. The word powerless was not in my vocabulary. I set out to fix him. Now, I proceeded to do several things, none of which I'm proud. And if there's any... Now, they weren't immoral and they weren't illegal. Let me tell you that on the front end. Um, and if there's anybody new in the program, I could preface what I'm going to say for the rest of the time until I got to Al-Anon by telling you, don't do one thing I did. In the first place, it never worked. In the second place, it just succeeded in making most of us, both of us miserable. Now, my first ploy was to tell him how to drink, when to drink, and how much to drink. Um, I thought that if I made a lot of plans and contrived a lot of activities that would keep him busy and put him in situations where he would find it was difficult to drink, that that would be a good idea. And also, I was going to become his constant companion. Wherever he went, I was going to try and go also. We were going to do things together. Well, I don't need to tell you it didn't work. But I wasn't discouraged. You see, I looked upon drinking as my enemy, and I declared war on Jack Daniels. Now, I contrived battle plans. Um, I could drink two drinks. That was always my limit. My husband drank doubles. And when I could, I'd switch with him. That was disastrous. Then I thought I'll make things so attractive at home that he won't want to leave. So I set out to be the perfect homemaker. I'm sure that I made him miserable, made me miserable, and everybody else that came in our home. It was just like living a showcase in a furniture store. You know, if you moved anything, you'd look to see if there was an X on it, because I'd put it right back where it was. I also thought that I would uh, practice up on gourmet cooking. Now, I'd never done a lot of cooking. I'd been teaching every excuse I had we'd eat out. But I got me some magazines, and I got me some recipes, and I was just going to 
attract him with these good home-cooked meals, many of which he never even saw, you know. But um, it did improve on my cooking. I have always been a very tailored person who wore suits and pajamas, and I thought, well, I can be more attractive in the bedroom. So I bought me some fancy frilly lingerie and uh, switched from pajamas to gowns. He didn't even know if I wasn't wearing long underwear. Very young, I was very blonde, and I returned to being a blonde. That worked so well, I'm still dipping my head today. It didn't help the drinking. Now, we had periods when he did not drink. I thought, because I knew nothing about alcoholism, that this was sobriety. You see, I had to wait to come to Al-Anon to learn that this was stiff-arming it, that this was dryness. And that's why I didn't understand why he was so miserable when he wasn't drinking. But, you see, I thought I had fixed it. I thought it was something that I had done that made him not want to drink. And I tried desperately to remember what it was. Because somehow I knew that he would drink again, and I would need to know this. Now, I'm not through with all this planning yet. I've got two or three more things I tried. I tried to calculate how much liquor cost. Now, there was always a case in the car and a case in the house. So I set out to spend an equal amount of money. My justification for this wasn't reasoning, but for this thinking was, that won't be so much money for him to drink on. Now, I first started out in soft goods. I always, I was saying to Isabel, I admired her pretty shoes. They've always been a weakness of mine, and I started with shoes, and I worked my way self up with clothes. When he started not only drinking but traveling when he drank, um, I went into larger purchases. Unfortunately, this was the era of French provincial furniture. Now, to this day, we have that furniture, and it's a constant reminder of me, to me, of how, you know, how silly, how crazy can you be? Now, I had two more plans that I hadn't tried. I had never been um, a person who belonged to a lot of women's organizations, and um I looked around this little town. There weren't many opportunities, you know, for activities unless you did something civic-minded. And so I set out to do good. And I know now that there's absolutely nothing as boring as a woman who sets out to do good. Now, some of these activities, and I'll just name a couple of them because they lasted so long, um... I belonged to the Recreation Commission in Clinton for 10 years, served longer than any other woman on the board. They finally disbanded, and I'm not quite sure it wasn't because I had served longer than anybody else. And the second activity I participated in was raising money for a library. We had always had a very small library room, and we had the potential of getting a building uh, from a couple of grants. We're in the Appalachia area, and one of them was an Appalachian grant, provided we could raise the upfront money. Well, 
the local newspaper editor made the mistake of telling this woman's committee. I, along with three of my friends, composed the fundraising committee, and he made the mistake of telling us that we couldn't raise $100,000. Now, my husband during this time made a classic comment. Now, he was in his cups, but true words were never spoken. He said, don't you ever tell four women going through the change of life they can't do anything. We did it. It took four years, but we did it. Now, my last attempt before surrender was to make a geographical change. He was already making them. Um, And this, again, was so foolish. Because sometimes when I would go away from home for a short period of time, he didn't even know I was gone. (laughs) But they helped me, and I think, you know, as many of you maybe feel as I do. We do what we do to survive. Uh, the last trip I made assured me that, um, you know, that it really should be the last. A friend of mine whose husband drank also, and I decided that we would go to Ireland. And um, to show you how foolish the decision was, we went in November. It's the world's worst possible time that you can go. Our husbands were so concerned about us that each night one or the other of them called. We never saw Ireland because we never got a night's rest. We had to sleep on the bus the next day. Well, my time had come. This was the last of all my failures. You know, I had be- I had played the game of alcoholism. I had become so obsessed with trying not only to fix him, but by this time I was trying to do what I called even up the score. You know, I had plans A and B. If he drank, I'd do this. If he didn't drink, drink that was plan B. I didn't realize that I had become so insensitive to others. I was not even aware that our daughter's marriage was in grave trouble and that she was terribly, terribly unhappy. She separated and later divorced. And during that time, that hiatus time, she was at home one day, and we were in the kitchen together, and she said to me, Mother, I don't know what happened to you. You're not like you used to be. You're so hard. You're bitter. Every time anybody says anything to you, you're sarcastic. And I realized that I had done this, no. I thought that his drinking had done this to me. You see, I justified everything I did by saying it's not as bad as his drinking. And I'd also reacted to everything. Well, I knew that I had to make a decision. Now, I had thought about divorce before. This was not a new idea. I had thought, well... I'm going to be magnanimous about this. I'll be very fair with him. I have given him the best years of my life. He can have one car and everything he can get in one suitcase, and I'll take the rest. But you see, I was still there. Now, there were periods when I didn't know whether I hated him or whether I loved him, and I think there's a very fine line there was with me between hate and love. But I know now that those little trips I made away from home, I never got away 
from wanting to come back. I never got away from the problem, and I was always concerned about what was going on while I was gone. And that tie was the tie that kept me there. And I don't think I mentioned that my mother had died during this time. And for some reason, and I'm sure it was unnecessary, but as long as she lived, I felt like that I had to keep proving that our marriage was a success, that we had no problems. Of course, I know I never fooled anybody. Lord, in this little town we live in, they know what you're going to do before you even do it. So I came to this decision that I would stay where I was, except I set up residence in the guest bedroom, and I became... We were two strangers under the same roof. Uh, when I got to Alamon and I heard the word detach, I thought I had already detached. Um, but I certainly didn't detach with love. Um, it was helpful for this reason, and I learned this in Alamon also. You know, I got off his back. You know, if he said, I'm going, I said, okay. And I no longer sounded like one of those tapes that you hear in AA, you know, that when he comes in the back door, you say, where have you been? And he said, I don't know. And he said, what have you been doing? Nothing. Well, what took you so long to do nothing? That gives you an idea of what it was like with me. Now, I had been a total failure at what I had tried to fix, and I was prepared just to wait for him to die because I knew that he was going to. The amount that he drank in the short period of time that he drank it. And we talked about this. Now, I think most of you know that lawyers are good communicators. That means, you know, being nice, they talk a lot. Um, and we talked a lot. Now, we never lacked for communication. We each talked, neither one of us listened. And I know now that's not communication. And I've made this statement before, and we've talked about it, and he doesn't agree with me. But I thought the last two years of the drinking were the worst two years of my life. Buford said that he saw no difference in those last two years. And I think the difference was with me. Because I did not have any hope. I could not see that we had any future. And during these times when we had these long discussions, sometimes till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, we had two topics of conversation. In the beginning, it was drinking, and later on, he added the topic, my life insurance. Well, as time went on, and we both got sicker, I must confess to you that I became a lot more interested in that life insurance than I did in the drinking. He had made the mistake of saying to me, when I die, you'll be the richest widow in Clinton. And I thought, well, I do have something to look forward to. But you know, that wasn't really the reason. I had looked all around in this little town, and I'd seen a lot of God's unclaimed blessings, and I didn't want to be one of them. And I thought, well, what I have is better than nothing, and I'm just going to stay here. Well, you can imagine that it wasn't a happy home. It wasn't a home that you would want to come into. We were both absolutely miserable. 
And one day, uh, Buford at the time was, was not on the bench. One day he said to me, I think I'll go to Knoxville and do some thinking. And I thought he was going to do some drinking, and I said, okay. Because that's about all we said to each other during this time. And I didn't know when I would see him again. But that night he came home, or rather he was brought home. A couple brought him home whom I knew of but did not know, but I didn't like them. And the reason I didn't like them, because I knew that this was one of the places that he went to drink. They told me that he had asked, and they had taken him to an AA meeting that night. They brought a big book with them. We made a pot of coffee, and they talked to me. And we didn't discuss it anymore that night. And he went back in his room, and he stayed several days. And when he came out, he said, I think I'll go to an AA meeting this morning. And I said, okay. And he did, and he came home. All in the same day. Not drinking. And I thought that was just great. Now, we had had a friend who lived up the street... And she was a very dear, close, personal friend. And one time she had come to our home after she was no longer drinking, and she talked about Alcoholics Anonymous. But, you know, for some reason, I didn't think that's how she got sober. She had been to a treatment center, and I thought, and I tried to get him to go to one, because I thought if it worked for her, it ought to work for him. But he didn't, it wasn't necessary for Buford to do that. You see, our time had come. His and mine. That was a Saturday, and on Sunday he said to me, would you go to an AA meeting? Now, to show you how little we knew about this, this was a closed Sunday morning discussion meeting. I was no more supposed to be there than anything. Nobody, you know, everybody was nice and they didn't say anything, but he knew enough to say to me, don't say a word. And I didn't. But when they came to him, you know, as they go around the room, and he gave his name and said, I'm Buford Llewellyn, and I'm an alcoholic. Those were absolutely the sweetest words that I had ever heard, and I never thought I would hear them. Well, things were going so well, and, and I just thought it was great, and I really didn't know anything about the program. And I said, but I was full of curiosity. I wanted to know what was going on over there in Knoxville. So I said to him, do they have a ladies' auxiliary? And he said, I don't know, but I'll find out. Now, that's how I got to Al-Anon. You see, among the other things that I didn't do during the active alcoholism, I made no effort to find out anything about alcoholism, the disease. I didn't know that it was. I made no effort to find out, you know, I could have written to New York. I kept seeing these little things on TV, but they weren't for me. They weren't for me yet. Now, I went into this little group in Knoxville. It was a very small group, and many of the ladies had been meeting together long before there was an Al-Anon program, you know. I could not have been in a group that could have helped me more. And I'll tell you why I was there. I was there because he wasn't drinking. He was in the next room. I like to know where he was. 
I thought that they would give me a guarantee that he would not drink again. I also thought that if you were in Al-Anon, you know, your fellows were in AA. Some of the happiest Al-Anons that I met in that group had active alcoholism in their homes. And this really got my attention. Now, why I went in with the attitude that there is nothing wrong with me, that his not drinking won't make okay, you know, a second Joan of Arc with one of the brightest halos you'd ever seen. Now, really, that, I found out, was not me. What I was was a great big mess just held together with hairspray and a girdle. Now, I was on the program, still going faithfully to Al-Anon. We only had a few groups in Knoxville at that time. In fact, I think there were only two. And I'm happy to report we have over 50 now uh, in our area. But I was going, and I was enjoying it, and I thought, my goodness, they've got a lot of problems. But I had intuitively learned hope that there was hope in that room, there was hope for me, and I learned trust, and I think you'll find that in any Al-Anon room that you go into, and I had never really trusted anybody before to talk about how I felt and what my problems were. Now, I think that AAs, the alcoholics in AA, get weller quicker. And I think it's because they know what's wrong with them. And if you don't know what's wrong with you, you don't think you need to get better. So that was a lesson that I first had to learn. And as I said, it took me about six months to get into the program. Now, I'm sure that I must have heard the serenity prayer before, but you know, it didn't mean what it meant to me in Al-Anon, and I was so glad we said it this morning because it was my security blanket for a long, long time. And I realized that rather than changing the things that I can and knowing the wisdom, having the wisdom to know the difference between the things you can change and the things that you can that I had devoted my whole life to trying to change people, places, and things, that I could do it better. I had um, had to remember that all the battle plans that I had had during the drinking <laughs> years were total failures. I realized also that although I knew what the word compassion meant and that I could spell it, that I had never really practiced it. And one of the most cruel things I think I did during the drinking was one of the words in the program that I had a problem with. And I thought, well, I've never taken anything. But then I remembered that the sense of false pride that I had had led me to say when people called, he's not here. And I would call up and say, he can't come today, he's sick. And then I also remembered that sometimes when he had been gone over long and would come home, 
that I developed this bad habit of looking in his wallet. And if there was more than one fairly decent-sized bill there, I would appropriate one of them. Who deserved it any more than I did? And the next morning he'd say, I thought I had so-and-so, and I'd say, I don't know where you've been. And I think, you know, it was necessary for me to get honest with myself before I could really get into the program. Perhaps the thing that I had the most problem with was humility. Humility had always meant to me being humble, being servile. And I never wanted to be that. You know, through Al-Anon, I'll know, and I learned, I know, and I believe that humility is the admission, the recognition, the acceptance of a power higher than you are. Now, I had never lost faith during the drinking. I had been a faithful church attender on Sundays. You had to be there to make the family look good. My, my belief, my religion, was practiced on Sunday. And, you know, there's, you know, I'm going to back up just a little bit because I want to say this. There's so much more that the Al-Anon family promises than I never dreamed was possible. It's an entirely new way of life. It is the best life that we have ever had. It's better than it was even before the drinking. These are not compassion, honesty, humility. These are not things that I had not heard before. But I did not know how to live them until I was in the Al-Anon program. And it was there that I learned that my God is with me every day. That if I have faith, I do not have to fear. That he is my friend, just as my husband is my friend today. I liked the little slogans. I thought they were nifty. They were easy to remember. To let go and let God. That has given me a great sense of freedom. I don't always do it. Sometimes I forget, and I take it back after I've given it to him. To live and let live, no longer do I have to be responsible for everybody, just for me, that I cannot change anyone but myself. And I had spent so, so many years trying to do that. I thought when I read the little slogan, One Day at a Time, that I had already, that I already knew how to do that. Because I can remember saying during the active alcoholism, Lord, let me get through this day. I spoiled many a good day because I relived the yesterdays and projected what was going to happen in the tomorrows. I don't have to do that today. And I wondered why no one ever told me that before. You know, I love the promises in the big book on pages 83 and 84. I think they can come true for us as Alanons 
just as much as they come true for the AA. You know, I look at the 12 steps and think they are a blueprint for living and that all of us together can travel, travel the road to happy destiny. Now, life has had its ups and downs with us. Buford's father, whom I love dearly, died early when he was early in the program. Our daughter has had a very unhappy life. She did remarry and was tremendously happy, and her husband was ill for a very long period of time with cancer. But he left two beautiful stepchildren who became the only grandchildren that we will have. And we are a happy, loving family together. And I might tell you that Elanon helped our daughter through not only her divorce, but also through the death of her husband. I appreciate your listening to me. I said to my husband, I'm going to say that I'm really not a speaker. This is the largest group that I've ever been with. But I kept saying they're just friends that I don't know. But you've been very kind, and I do appreciate it. And I would like to close with this little poem, Look to This Day. For yesterday is but a dream, and tomorrow is only a vision. But today, well lived, makes every yesterday a dream of happiness, and every tomorrow a vision of hope. Thank you.